IB teacher talk. teacher talk. However, when I was teaching grade six, the grade six students actually schooled me and they told me off and they said, our grade five teacher says that we should employ the platinum rule. And I said, what's the platinum rule? And they said, the platinum rule is to treat other people the way they want to be treated. Okay, Rachel, what are we looking forward to learning about today with Rebecca Stein? Well, I have some important questions about being an international teacher. I have some really hard questions about being a female and about being a Westerner. And I have some questions about the things you shouldn't talk about, like, you know, money, politics, religion, food. All right, let's go. Let's roll. Welcome back to IB Teacher Talk. I am your host, Daniel Lambert, and I am with the fantastic and wonderful. Hi, I'm Rachel Smith. I think you're fantastic and wonderful, too. I know. I know that. <laughs> um, who are we with today, Rachel? Well, we are with Rebecca Stein. She is returning to hang out with us. How are you doing, Rebecca? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you guys? I think I've seen you before. <laughs> Once or twice. <laughs> You've been on our podcast before that, have you not? Indeed, I have. Guilty. Hi, Rebecca. Can you tell us how long have you been an international teacher? And maybe give us a one-line tag of why we should all be international teachers. Yeah, I have been an international teacher for six of the last seven years. And we should all be international teachers because you learn a lot about yourself and about the world and about other people when you go away from the place you call home. Uh, Rebecca, can you tell us what you think makes an international teacher? Yes. Um, this is probably going to sound bad to say, but I will say it. I got my master's in inclusive education, which a lot of the world knows as special education. And I first understood the value of that degree when I was teaching in Malaysia, teaching a group of students who were second language, actually fourth language learners, some of them. It's, it's the same techniques. So something that an international teacher needs to be able to do is work with very diverse populations. Um, and you need to be really flexible within that. And I think something else an international teacher needs to be able to do is step away from what they know and embrace what there is there. Because we do come with a lot of background and prejudices and understanding of our own educational experiences. And I think all teachers bring that into the classroom and international teachers need to not do that. So do you think, should teachers go international before they've taught in their homeland or should they immediately go into teaching in a culture that they're familiar with? I don't know. I, okay. I, I think that might be a chicken and egg question because <laughs> if, you, if you leave teaching school and go overseas, then that's really what you know and that's the culture that teaches you how to teach, which is a weird amalgam of different ways of teaching. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a good answer for that one. I have another question, though, because I don't have an answer. Um, do you think that many international teachers are keen to return home and teach domestically? I think that's a really tricky question. Yes. Um, when I went back to the U.S. for a year, in, after two years of teaching overseas, I was really picky about where I was and was not going to work. And maybe that was to my detriment. And I was very happy to return overseas. But does that mean teachers won't go back and teach? It's different. It's definitely different. Um, Rachel, would you be keen to go back home and teach? 
I don't think I could. I think I'd miss out on too much of the diversity and, you know, the cultural experience. I don't think I could do it. I think that in many ways we can achieve great levels of diversity in our home countries, depending on where you teach. That's true. But I think that perhaps the things, the elements of being in an international and living in a foreign country is what you would obviously lose out on. Which you desperately miss. But then I also think, and I can speak to only the U.S. about this, there is a respect for teachers overseas that in the United States uh, you do not experience. And there, there are expectations of teachers in the United States that are impossible because of the systems that exist there. And so it's nice to be in an environment that understands education and not just schooling, I think. Yeah, I feel as though that's definitely one of the reasons. And I almost feel like I could say things like that, but it almost makes me feel bad to, to recognize that my the place where I'm from looks at teachers in a way where they're like, eh, here, good luck. <laughs> yeah, and I, I wonder how much of that dynamic exists in other parts of the world, and we don't right. see it because we're in really specific schools. We don't move overseas and teach in a local public school. That's not our job. Can I ask you to just clarify something you said that I found really interesting? You said the difference between education and schooling. Yeah, I wrote a blog post, maybe several blog posts about this. And when I think of schooling, I think of you are in an environment to do a thing. And the role of a teacher is to guide students to do thing. And that's it. And it exists for a certain reason. And it might exist because we need an exam score so that we can go to university so that we can get a job. It might exist because we need childcare so that we can run a society. When you educate, it comes that comes from Latin roots, right? And it has to do with upbringing. And in my mind, I think of it as raising children and raising good people is a way I've described it in the past. And so when you're educating, I think there is more of an emphasis on who you are working with and who you are helping to build and not just on the end product. I love that. I, I found this postcard one time and I copied it and it out all over my last school and it just says, be good humans on it. Yes. And I was like, actually, I, this really resonates with me. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> and I just handed it to the kids as I walked in the hall and they were like, what? <laughs> Can I just controversially try and suggest that many teachers in our home countries feel exactly the same way mm. and they're trying to educate very, very similarly? Oh, no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. So what then do you think makes it different being an international teacher in terms of trying to find that balance that you describe between education and schooling? I think that because international schools are private schools, they are exempt from local politics. And I don't think it's the individuals involved in schools that make them what they are. I think it's the systems that they operate in. And there are different schooling systems in different parts of the world that do different things and they do different things well and they do different things poorly. But when you are in an international school, I think it's really important to remember that this is a school that is not governed by the rules and regulations of the place where it happens to be located. Uh, many teachers in the UK will complain about Ofsted visits, yeah. which are the visits for the, the sort of regulatory body. And that's what leads to a, a huge amount of stress for teachers. And lots of teachers leave because of that. Yeah. Mm. So maybe that sounds like a benefit for not being in the UK, at least. So tell me, Rebecca, what makes international students different? A lot of things. Um, International students as a monolith, which they are not, I think is important, important to say. Um, international students have a concept of what it means to be in the world rather than in a specific town or city or place. 
And I think that makes a difference because they know that there are different places out there. And it's, it's one thing to have a child know that there's somebody from another country. It's quite another thing to have a child not only know that sort of externally, but also know it internally, mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense. So that's significant. I think one of my experiences of international students is they they are adaptable to change because more than likely they will have moved to a couple of different schools and have had to adapt to different countries, different environments. And so I think that's one of the things that I would say defines international students. Uh, Rachel, what do you think? I absolutely agree with that. They're very adaptable. But what do you think they missed, Rebecca? Can I go back to the adaptable bit for a second? I think one thing is that not all of them actually move around. There are some who stay in the same country for many, many, many years, but they are used to change because things are changing around them. And whether that's the student body or the teaching body or the school they're attending because regulations do change in different countries. Um, Like there was a whole thing in Indonesia a number of years ago. So I think that's something too. That makes me want to go back even further to the international teacher thing. And if if you're an international teacher, you will be surrounded by a body of teachers who will change and will be in flux. Does that make a big difference to our job? I think so, because in an international school, you don't have the institutional memory that you might have elsewhere. So the first school I worked in was in the US and it was a school that had been around for a long time and there were people in it who had been there for their entire careers who were retiring. So, you know, 30 odd years, a lot of institutional memory goes into that. And if you don't know something, you know exactly who does and it's probably half the staff. Whereas in an international school, it's possible that the two people who knew something left and nobody else realized (laughs) they needed to know that information until it wasn't there. Nobody knows anymore. So Rebecca, are there challenges to being an international student? I would say so. And I feel a little bit funny speaking for these students because I'm, I'm not an international student. I'm not a third cultural kid is something I think important to say. But um, challenges, yes. And the things that I talk with my students about primarily are this sense of belonging and what belonging can mean. And so I talk with them in the context of really anything, but in psychology, how belonging doesn't have to be national because a lot of them sort of wave a national flag because it gives them something to say, but they've never actually lived in that place and they may or may not have a relationship with that place. Or I've talked with students who feel like they're supposed to be something because they carry a certain passport, but they don't really know what that thing is because they, that's not their thing. That's not where they're, where any of who they are makes sense. So where do you think that they can get that sense of belonging? Yeah, so we talk about affiliation groups, basically. So um, if there are people who follow the same religious beliefs as you, if you're in a band, if you're in an athletic pursuit, if you have a CCA, a co-curricular activity, theater, whatever, and having that be something that means something to you and something that is salient in terms of identity. So connecting more on a human level rather than a nationalistic level. Yeah. I think that would benefit lots of people. Yeah. Have you ever read any third culture kid books? Yes. Oh, man. They're fascinating and tragic at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I think something that goes along with that, too, which I say to my students and I know they don't understand it, is you are going to meet people who do not understand you and you will not understand right. them. Yeah. Um, and I think we had an opportunity to speak to former graduates of our school and they spoke to our grade 12s and they said you know we think we're all resilient and everything because we've moved around a lot you're gonna miss your mom too Mm -hmm. and I I just remember hearing these kids say that and I thought 
I remember what you were saying a year ago and you were all, oh, yeah, it's going to be fine. And so that's just really interesting. As an international teacher, we often fly, which costs money, and we have to go back home every once in a while. Can you save money in this job? It depends on where you work. When I first moved overseas, I was teaching at a startup school in Malaysia, and I was making money under the table, and I was not making very much money. Um, I work now at a school where I get paid remarkably well compared to what I would be making anywhere else. And I'm going to a school on a different continent where I'm going to make almost nothing. So it really depends on where you are. So if you want to save money, um, I've been told the Middle East is a great place to do that. And we know that Asia is a great place to do that. So as far as being an international teacher, what's the best dish or a few dishes you've discovered on your travels? Ooh, so I'm a vegetarian. I will preface it with that just to say that a lot of things are limiting and there are people who go to a hole in the wall place and point and something comes to them and I cannot do that. And every so often I think to myself, should I give up this vegetarian thing and and do that because I'm missing out on this experience? And so far, I haven't made that choice. Um, so I love Vietnamese food from the street in Vietnam. Yes. It, it just tastes mind-blowingly fresh compared to anything else I've had in many, many places. I love the variety of Indian food that I've discovered. Yeah, and that's veg- very vegetarian-friendly. Can you just name-check a couple of dishes, perhaps some uh, Vietnamese dishes that you particularly like or some Indian dishes that you really love? Yes. So I do really love pho. And if you can get vegetarian pho, I have, that's what I've gotten. Um, but I think real pho is made of beef mostly. Yeah. yeah. Beef or chicken. Beef usually, yeah. Beef usually. Yeah. So that, um, any variety of fresh spring roll always comes with a sauce that just blows me out of this world. So really love that. Um, in terms of Indian food... No, I can't name any dishes because I just know where to point on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about um, beverages? Have you discovered any wild and exciting beverages on your travels? Not especially, but one thing I have discovered is that a really delicious thing, no matter where I have gone, is a glass of the local not very good lager with ice while watching the world go by. And I... I love what that feels like and I love what it tastes like and you're drinking this thing and you're like this is awful but everything about the experience is everything that I want and when I wasn't in Asia for a year I really missed it. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite things to do is go to a market and get some sketchy ice and a cold beer. (laughs) (laughs) But I've also I'm, I'm still on beverages actually. I've also really fallen in love with Te Halia. Can you tell the listeners what that is? It is ginger tea with condensed milk because most drinks that you get in Singapore and Malaysia that are hot drinks are very sweet and they contain condensed milk. I don't like sweet things, but when it's hot out and you're sweating, it really is a wonderful thing. Um, Rachel, what kind of drinks do you like and or have you discovered on your travels? Well, I'm partial to uh, Japan highballs (laughs) in a can. (laughs) I didn't know that. Now you do. Shout out to Lawson's in Japan. (laughs) I think, this is a serious one. I think another really wonderful thing about Asia and beverages that people don't necessarily realize is the sheer variety of fruit and vegetable juices. Previously, the only place where I had gotten that was the Middle East. And the heat is similarly intense. um, And it's just a beautiful thing to watch these things go into a juicer and then come out in front of you. And then they're wonderful. 
I want to give a shout out to Taiwan because oh, yeah. in Taiwan you have the most wonderful fruit juices as well as the teas, which they do loads of. They have amazing fresh fruit juices. And one thing that I've discovered on my travels is the idea of seasonal fruits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mangoes are in season in the summer. We all drink mango juice and then strawberries might be in season in the winter and then we'll all drink strawberry juice. Rebecca, our school and many other schools have been talking about this concept of DEI, which is diversity, equity and inclusion. What do you see as a diverse or inclusive school? I think that's a great question, and it's definitely something that's come into discourse, which I appreciate. So when I think of diversity, equity and inclusion, and when I think of a diverse and inclusive school, I think of a place that makes its community a place where people belong. Um, and I think that has to be created. I don't think it just happens. And I think it's not about passports. It's not about colors. It's not about number of countries. It's not about number of languages. It's about how do those people interact in a space and how do those people think of who they are and how do they think of other people around them. And it's a community that embraces the human and the human is different. I think one of the misunderstandings is that people think you're at an international school. There are a variety of passport holders at your school. Therefore, you are diverse. Yeah, and I, I think that's not A, not the case, and B, just wrong. Can you think of maybe like two tips that would help teachers to foster this diversity, equity, and inclusion? I think in a classroom context, you have a lot of opportunity to do that. And I know that there has been literature for a really long time talking about the importance of addressing students by name. And I think this, this extends far beyond the preferred name and preferred names are a hot topic in and of themselves. But just the fact that you are willing to look a young person in the eye and call them by their name and say hello to them every morning or every afternoon or whatever um, creates an environment where I, the individual, am recognized. And so that's a really simple one that I think is important. That's I, a good one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think a second thing to consider might be, and this is something that I have definitely found, if I've explained something once and students don't understand what I have said, and there are students who do understand what I have said, saying it again probably isn't going to help. And asking, okay, so the way I've said it clearly doesn't work for you. Can somebody volunteer a different way? And being as explicit as that with my students so that they know that we are all actually in this together. So just asking somebody else in the room to rephrase it yeah. in their own words. I like that. I never thought about that. I think that's really nice because often the student who would rephrase your words has a really good understanding of what it feels like to not understand. Mm. Yeah. So they may come at it from a different angle. Yeah, definitely. Or even just where those students happen to be coming from is different from where me, the teacher, like where I'm coming from. So I hear this idea of uh, being made to feel like you belong. What other... Things do you think that we can do as teachers, perhaps in terms of curriculum design, will help to make students feel more... In terms of this concept of making students feel like they belong in our schools, what can we do as teachers with our curriculum design? So I think when you're looking at curriculum, you're looking at what do I want these people to know, understand, be able to do when they leave this? But I also think we can think about it in terms of who do I want this student to be? And if we're designing a curriculum based on that, that gives us opportunity to build in facets of belonging or ways of being or habits of mind that we want all humans to have and be able to do. 
Can I talk about group work for a second? I think group work is really essential here because you can deliberately put students together who wouldn't choose to put each other together or to be together in a group. Um, you can, and in, in, in doing that, you can force these conversations that might not otherwise happen. And something that I used to emphasize both because it helped me and because I worked at a school that got an influx of new kids every semester, um, which was a domestic school actually, um, something I required students to do when they were in a group for the first month of class is introduce themselves. And I would give like 30 seconds for that because I never wanted a student to be in a room not knowing the names of the other students in the room and thinking that some students didn't know their name. So that's just one of those things. And you can, you know, assign roles in groups to play to different students' strengths and you can do all kinds of things with that. But I think deliberate grouping and determining when you are grouping students should be part of any written curriculum if what you're going for is diversity, equity, inclusion. Kids want to fight the seating chart so hard, but I think it's one of the best tactics for classroom management and possibly fostering those, those conversations, right? Can I just butt in and say that I often ask my students at the end of a semester if they want to rotate the seats and change and meet up and sit with different kids, and overwhelmingly they want to. Yeah. It's so. only the bad kids that want to sit together and like do nothing <laughs> that want to sit together. I'm actually very happy to not put my students in a seating chart, which might seem like it goes against everything I just said, but as a, <laughs> but as Do a, tell. yes. So as a result of that, there's time in class where they know they'll be talking to the person sitting nearest them, but there are a thousand times during class where we choose groups based on who is not at your table and who is not in your row and who is taller than you, or I just choose the groups for them. So there's enough movement that I think I can give them the comfort of sitting where they want to sit, but I've also done it the other way and... You're great teachers too. It feels like you've got a, it feels like you've got a really good uh, plan to give people kind of a home base where they feel comfortable and they sit with kids that they feel more comfortable with perhaps and then they'll be you'll you'll sew into your learning moving around and interacting with other students. Yeah, because I do think having the classroom as a safe space is important and if you are around people who just rub you the wrong way then you are disengaged from before you walk into that room. <laughs> So, Rebecca, to come back to this idea of identity and belonging in schools, I wanted to tell you guys both a story about one time where I completely messed up and judged somebody by their identity that I had assumed. So we live and we work in Singapore and our students come from various racial backgrounds and a student was in my class who was Caucasian and spoke with an English accent and I asked her where she was from and she said Singapore and my follow-up question I feel ashamed to say was but where were you from originally mm. and she said my family have been living in Singapore for three generations and I felt like an idiot and I looked like an idiot and I would really like to not look like an idiot again. <laughs> what can we do as international teachers to avoid these kind of situations? I think that's a really tricky place to be. And I think it's probably been the experience of most international teachers to have done something like that. I've definitely done something similar. And it wasn't until it was pointed out to me that I understood what had happened. Um, so what can we do to avoid being in situations like that? I think part of the work we're doing with DEI is about unpacking what 
stereotypes we hold and what prejudices we hold and understanding that they are part of who we are, not because we're bad people, but because we're human people. And this is something that I think everyone can benefit from understanding. So it's an awareness of who I am, where I come from, and then also an awareness of where I have gone to and just sort of appreciating that element of it, that something is different and being aware that something is different doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do something about it other than be aware that it exists and let that slow you down a little bit. It's almost like deprogramming, right? I would say, actually, this is what it really means to be mindful. Mm, I don't like the way the word is thrown around, but I think this is an appropriate use of that word. It means to be aware of what is happening around you and to take a breath before you respond. I'm sure that this is a situation that's incredibly pertinent for teachers anywhere they live. But I think as international teachers, it feels like we are maybe introduced into these situations where we can make these gaffes and foolish mistakes based on identity perhaps a little bit more often. Rebecca, have you ever felt like your identity has been compromised because of your gender? Yes. Yeah. So I think something that I've definitely noticed is that school leaders that I am around tend to be men, Um, which is just something to consider when you're going to have a conversation about them is that there is a power dynamic at work that is more than they're the boss and I'm the employee, but that there is, whether they recognize it or not, or whether it's intended or not, there is a gendered power dynamic. Um, And we have a little bit of a history at the place where we've worked where there have been female leaders and it was really interesting one year I overheard a comment from a colleague that said oh did you hear another strong woman got fired and and that was exactly what had happened it had been three females in administrator positions in three years and at some point you need to ask the question of why is this happening so anytime I've entered into a conversation with an administrator where I have gotten a little bit emotional which frankly happens a lot because I really do deeply care about the students and environment we work in. I wonder if what I'm saying is going to be treated a certain way because I'm an emotional woman saying it and not because it's true. That's really sad to hear. Yeah. As a male teacher, Rebecca, what do you think that I and my gender team need to know in terms of what we can do to be less patriarchal? So I think when we're talking about gender, it's important to understand that all of us are socialized into gendered adults. And we're, we're getting, I think, a little bit away from that as a, as a society. Um, but we have all become men or become women because of things that we were taught. And sometimes stepping away from that can be really, really difficult. So for example, we expect that people are going to speak up at meetings, which first of all is a Western expectation that we have and we are in, I think, highly Western environments. And so that's one thing to consider. But we expect that people are going to speak up at meetings because we might expect that, well, if they care about something, they'll speak up. But we might not be thinking about the fact that many women have not been raised in a way that expects that of them. So just because they're not speaking or they're not speaking right away or just because some people might want to slow down and think rather than hear their own voice. um, So perhaps allowing room for some pre-meeting thinking or post-meeting thinking or debriefing forum might mean that you're getting voices and opinions that you wouldn't hear at that space at that time. I think that's a wonderful answer. And I think that that also makes me think of uh, my classroom. 
and I can apply exactly the same knowledge to my classroom, I mm -hmm. hope. Definitely. And I think something that international teachers also need to be aware of, and I thought about this and sort of touched on it earlier, is that we're in an international school, but international schools are overwhelmingly Western in their approach and their pedagogy. Yes. And for people who are teaching in the Western world, that is maybe okay, but you've still got students who are probably not from the Western world. And for us here in Asia, we are sort of parachuting ourselves into this place that lives, exists, breathes, and teaches its people very differently than we have been taught and expected. And just being sensitive to all the cultural dynamics at work. I think it's important to also remember that there's the linguistic dominance that yeah. English has in international schools. And I think as international teachers, we need to always be aware of that and the negative effects that that can have on a classroom. Yes. And I think we also need to be aware of the way that affects our relationship with parents and caregivers because we have native or near native has become the new popular term command of standard written and spoken English we are looked upon a certain way regardless of what we might actually be doing and how we might actually be behaving and unfortunately I think there's a lot of room for abuse in that context. I think the best thing that we can do that, that I've found is to always be a model. I've had girls come up to me and say something about being an outspoken or strong person and they find it inspiring. And I never really think about that in the moment, right? But I think the best thing we can do in the moment and every single time is just be like, I'm a model. Mm -hmm. What can I do to be the best model? Yeah, that's right. And in that sense, we are raising people. And so what I want out of people, I want people to be empathetic and I want them to understand one another and I want them to consider alternate perspectives. If I'm not behaving in those ways, like you say, how do I expect them to behave if they're not seeing it from me? It's like the golden rule or something. What's the golden rule? Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. So once upon a time when I was a kid, <laughs> I was in a musical song dance sort of chorus line background with these, no, really, with these two Canadian children's performers. And they had a song that I loved where the golden rule was recited in all of its, in, in many different languages. And it was oh. so exciting to be one of those kids who got to say what one of the languages was. Hold on, what's the golden rule? It's like a ratio, right? Like... <laughs> in in, in TOK, it's 1.613. No, I'm pulling your leg, Dan. I, I don't, it's not E equals MC squared. No, the golden rule is do unto others as you would have others do unto you. However, when I was teaching grade six, the grade six students actually schooled me and they told me off and they said, our grade five teacher says that we should employ the platinum rule. And I said, what's the platinum rule? And they said, the platinum rule is to treat other people the way they want to be treated. Oh, and I, I love thought, that. wow. Good going, grade five teacher. Sounds good, grade six yeah. kids. That's great, isn't it? When yeah. you get taught by the kids. Yeah. And they were so adamant about it. They were like, because how do you know how they want to be treated? Dang, platinum rule. I'm yeah. in. Yeah, maybe they don't want to be treated the way you want to be treated. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's true. That's excellent. Rebecca Stein, thank you so much for joining us. I think we've learned a huge amount again from you. And we look forward to hearing from you in the future. It's been a pleasure. I'd love to. I am so excited about the platinum rule. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Rachel, that was another fascinating interview with our return guest, Rebecca Stein. What are your main takeaways from today's interview? I really enjoyed talking with Rebecca about international people, whether we are teachers or students, and how assumptions dictate who we are and how we act. Yeah, and perhaps how, may, how we need to leave our assumptions behind. 
Yes. I also really enjoyed talking with her about the essence of DEI and how we need to understand that we need to make people feel like they belong and what we need to do to make that happen. That was, that was really interesting because it felt like lots of our other conversations came down to this essential idea of making students feel like they belong. Finally, the platinum rule. It's better than the golden rule. Which I didn't know existed. <laughs> so now the platinum rule is my favorite rule. I loved it. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye.